This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary in progress for the week of July 2nd, 2018. I'm going to meander a little bit in this podcast. Um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to address. And um, although they could be created, I could create separate podcasts. I think that it might be good to um, link them together just for further reflection, I guess, if nothing else. So um, first I I wanted to talk about the media. Um, Something I haven't really talked much about are the issues in an article published by the Seattle Weekly, and that was published, I think that was in 2016, it was published in February 2016, and I have said that there's issues with it, but I've never really addressed what those issues were, and so I wanted to do, I wanted to mention a couple of things, and I'm not including everything here, so I'm I'm not saying this is all that's wrong with that article, I'm just saying these things are wrong. Um... There were some statements made about my dad that were not correct. And um, one of the things that was stated that was sort of to imply he was promoted. I had made a statement um, early on that he, and I have been consistent in this, that he was, um, um, after he was working on researching um, Carl Harp, after he had met Carl Harp in the courthouse in August, on August 25th, or excuse me, 23rd, um, 1973, that um, he continued to, you know, work on that story on his own and that he was not a reporter at the time. So he was not assigned the story, nor was he necessarily doing it for publication in the paper. It was something he was taking on um, on his own, um, in his, on his own time. So, um, so he was a managing editor at the time. So he wasn't writing stories or reporting during that time. He was assigning stories, but the Seattle weekly article stated that, um, or let me back up a little bit. So I had stated that he, you know, he, um, was, told to drop the story and when he didn't drop it or drop his investigation and when he didn't drop it he was demoted and so um, the Seattle Weekly obliquely addressed that by implying that my dad was promoted when he was moved from uh, the Seattle office the downtown office of the Seattle PI which was um, at 6th and Wall he was uh, moved to the east side um, to become the, they, they said, the bureau chief of the east side. Well, at the time in 19, I think that was when that happened, I think that was around 1974 or early in 1975. When that happened, um, Bellevue and the east side was not the thriving metropolis that it is now. So uh, Bellevue in the east side in Seattle was uh, was very country like, and um, so it was like being de- it was being demoted, but the Seattle Weekly wrote it as if he had been promoted. So I I wanted to clarify that and and I have brought that up 
um, to the uh, editor of the of the weekly. I had I have talked to him about that, so I just wanted to also say that. Um, the Seattle Weekly article also said that he was um, that he was assigned an article, or that he was told, um, sorry, to move on to other stories, as if he was assigned the article to write, like he was assigned the to look into uh, the Carl Harp story and that he wasn't somehow keeping up his uh, part of the bargain and, and they didn't want him to work on it anymore and he was encouraged to move on to other stories. Well, that's a completely fabricated statement and I don't know um, why that would be written <laughs> at all because he was not assigned stories, he was not assigned that article and he was not told to move on. So that's completely fabricated. He was a manager. So he was a manager. He assigned stories. And he was doing this research on his own. And so that's completely fabricated. And I've also brought that up with the editor of the Seattle Weekly as well. So just to be clear on that. Um, and I think it's interesting that the name of the, the title of the story or the title of the article in the Seattle Weekly is titled Sniped. Because there's a definition, if you look up in the dictionary, for the, the word sniped as a verb. And this is, um, I'm, a, I'm going to quote it. Quote, to attack a person or a person's work with petulant or snide criticism, especially anonymously or from a safe distance. And I do think that the weekly article did do that. It did that to the Indelible Project. This was early on. I started the project in 2014, and I had been contacted um, by the writer of that story, who um, is somebody that my father knew, but who my father had helped hire, and who's, um, you know, I don't know why he would agree to... Um, write such a story in the way that that was written. Um, but anyway, he did. And um, I think that titling the story Sniped is helpful in understanding that sort of a reflecting or giving insight into what the motive is for that story. And these are not new issues with mainstream media and the weekly is mainstream media now um, so just to even though it's small mainstream media and also um, if we then look at the Seattle Times how they wrote 10 articles on the Dufour trial case stating that the shooting occurred on April 24th 1979 when it occurred on May 24th, 1979. And that um, I reached out to the editorial staff and they confirmed that, yes, they saw that and that appeared to be wrong. And uh, they said that the reporter was still living and uh, they knew how to contact him and that they would reach out to him, but that he never contacted me. Um, So I think that and as I've said, in um, I did a video podcast where I talked a little bit more about the Duffer case and the purpose of those uh, 10 articles having the wrong date. Um, I think, again, it's, 
it's another um, similar motive as to why the um, weekly might want to um, make such statements about my father. Um, what appears to happen is they uh, oftentimes the um, authorities will often go after the messengers and they'll use the news media to do that. Um, if someone in mainstream press is um, not participating and is somehow um, going in a direction which is counter to the direction um, that is desired by these authorities, then you know, again, the messengers will be uh, invalidated or there'll be an attempt to invalidate them or take them out. So those who are allowed to speak, such as the Seattle Times reporter who reported that article with the wrong date in 10 different, or reported the wrong date for the trial 10 different times, and the Seattle Weekly making misstatements about my father's history and sort of implying a false history, a false narrative. Um, those are not necessarily reliable voices, but those are the ones given the authority to speak. So when someone looks into something which may be truly critical or exposing of wrongdoing by those acting under the color of the law, they often encounter obstacles they can't overcome. If they persist, they lose their lives or their lives are so damaged in their reputation or health that they have been removed from any viable speaking platform. That's frequently how that works. And we saw this with Gary Webb and with Michael Hastings. Those are two reporters. Gary Webb was with the San Jose Mercury, and he did um, a lot of research into the use of uh, money from illegal um, drugs, the sales of it, and transporting of illegal drugs um, to fund um, counterinsurgency and Ill uh, counterinsurgency and wars, both legal and illegal, um, that the U.S. was undertaking, um, and. Part of that story is somewhat connected to, um, possibly connected to the indelible story with the Canadian drug bust, which I talked about again at the um, the video podcast that I did uh, on the seventeenth. You can find that on YouTube. And Michael Hastings um, is a Rolling uh, Rolling Stone reporter. He was, I think, a freelance reporter, but he did a story for Rolling Stone that was very popular. That was um, that looked into. Um, the behavior of a general in the military, and was critical of his behavior, and um, and he would and he later died in an, a car accident that looked very much as though it had been a as though his car had been um, hacked and um, and caused uh, to um, have an impact at a high high speed with a tree. So um, I think that um, I think that you know we see examples of this 
more and more frequently. I think that they probably occurred earlier. Um, and although I might be criticized for this, I'm going to include my father among this group. I've become more convinced of this by the obstacles placed before me to obtain his documents, including his autopsy report and his doctor's records. And my father was 51 when he died. This is somewhat private information, so by my sharing it here, I mean, I'm... I feel it's important to do so. I'm not doing so half-heartedly or without reflecting before I do it, so just to let you know that. Um, My father was 51 when he died, and mechanically he died from bleeding, which occurred from a hemorrhage um, where his at, at at the end of his esophagus, and he then lapsed into a coma, and then died the next day. And as I said, there were two federal agents that stood outside his treatment room as he lapsed into the coma at the hospital. But as family member, we were not, or I was not, I was the only one there. I was not um, allowed to go even to the door of the treatment room like they were, I had to look through their backs into that room. I was not able I had to sit, I was told to sit across the hall. I was not allowed to be near it, but they were allowed to be there. So I just wanted to, um, I wanted to bring that up. I don't think I've mentioned that in, um, with that kind of an expression before. I have mentioned that there were two federal agents there before. But anyway, they were there until he lapsed into a coma. But I also wanted to mention that he had become um, rapidly more jaundiced in the month preceding his death. And um, my father did drink, so it's it's not that he didn't, and I'm not denying that he drank. But it's very hard, if not impossible, to fully function professionally at the level he did. He was a managing editor at a major newspaper, So to fully function professionally at the level he did and to drink to the point of killing yourself at the age of 51. It's pretty hard to do. And research shows that during during the same time, um, federal and military agencies in the U.S. and in other countries took the lives of those they opposed by causing liver damage. And you can read about this by looking up a man named Alexander Litvinenko, um, L-I-T-V-I-N-E-N-K-O, who died in the UK, I think in 2006. And you'll see that he's quite jaundiced. There's pictures on Wikipedia. So it's um, it's not something that was impossible to do, to take someone out by causing liver damage if you desired to take them out and that they would die quite rapidly. And this occurred with my father. We didn't know ahead of any indication that my father was sick. And about a month before he died, he became very jaundiced, and then he died. Um, and he knew something was going on because he put the um, notebooks from the harp case in the back of his the trunk of his car and parked it at a parking garage and then made his way up to doctor's hospital which is on first hill by which is now part of virginia mason and and then he died he went into a coma 
um, not shortly after he arrived at the hospital. So he knew something was going on, and um, his house was incredibly, impeccably uh, swept clean, and there were some odd things that I found at his house. And um, I'm not going to mention what those are because I'm not ready to do that yet because I'm still working on that part of the story. But, um, but, but there were some things that made it look as though somebody else had been in that house. And it was a small house on Mercer Island. The fact that the editorial staff at the Weekly felt compelled to make false and derogatory statements about my father further make it likely that uh, there is a motive engaged to paint my father with a derogatory brush. And I've encountered this several times over the course of the project. So um, there's a there's a motive there. You know, it's clearly I've talked I talked to someone else who's um, very vocal about uh, being critical of my father, who um, I never heard of before. I mean, people just kind of like you know rising up and wanting to make statements, and then when you look into their background, they have a background that connects them to. Um, Working with, um, I don't want to say that yet because it's, anyway, their background sort of fits with making those kinds of statements. And I'll talk more about that later when I'm prepared to do so. I don't want to say something that I, I mean, say you wrongly. But make no mistake, uh, this targeting of messengers is viewed as a kind of war by authorities and even if you want to remove yourself, you are unable to do so once targeted. You are unable to live a normal life. And strategists are hired by those acting under the color of the law to design methods to remove a critical voice. And this is in the United States. This isn't, you know, in some third world country. And as I have mentioned before, one group is named Tiger Swan, who was hired to control critical voices during the Standing Rock events. And you can look them up in articles written on The Intercept. So if you look up The Intercept and then do a search for Tiger Swan, you'll come up with a series of articles that they did on Standing Rock and, and Tiger, Swan. Tiger Swan. And I did mention Tiger Swan before, um, in relation to my own experience, because one of the same people they mentioned who uh, worked for Tiger Swan actually had become attached to me in 2009, So, um, which is when my smear campaign began. But I just wanted to let you know that that is part of um, the process, that there's strategists. These are, are not ignorant people. This is These are like high-level think tank strategists that work to create and design these um, methods or strategies to remove critical voices, especially with uh, social media. I mean, social media, in a sense, now has become just the perfect platform for um, removing a voice. And really, this is all very reminiscent of Stalin's regime or Hitler's. 
But our government researchers studied these methods and they adopted them into their toolbox right after World War II. And you can read more about that in Project Paperclip where they brought a lot of the Nazis and the Nazi scientists um, into the United States to um, to study their, their work, as did other countries. Um, we weren't the only ones. But in the U.S., we allegedly have laws against taking such actions against our own people or our own press. But somehow we have allowed such protections to slip away. Because our mainstream media is now effectively an arm of the state, it does no good to share things with them. As stories will be written as propaganda, like the weekly article on the Indelible Project, it's written to frame or usurp an effort before that effort is even completed, and it's written to support the narrative of those in law enforcement who may have not acted correctly or legally, and it's written to mislead the public, not to inform them. And similar with the Seattle Times articles, um, where they pushed the wrong date for the shooting of Kenneth Ward in the defer trial, so that it uh, the dates were separated between that and the um, and the uh, drug bust, which occurred two days earlier. And again, uh, they published over 10 articles with the wrong date, and it was never corrected. And again, as I've said, uh, there's a motive that one can establish for such a misstating. It's, again, it separates the date of the shooting from the date of the drug capture during the drug bust, which was, and those drugs were slated to cross the border where the shooting occurred two days later. So, um, again, if you look at the, the video podcast um, dated June 17th, 2018, on our YouTube channel, you can you can hear me talk about that. And there's also articles in the description. I link to articles so you can read them yourself. Since I learned of HARP's training and I spoke to attorney Bill Pepper, I've been following the case of Sirhan Sirhan, the man falsely accused in the death of um, Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, because Pepper is his lawyer. My interest was because of his alleged training prior to the shooting. Like the former kids in this story, he was targeted and trained prior to being named in a very public shooting crime. He, too, was from California, during the same period of time, and he first learned to shoot in high school when he participated in the ROTC. And that fact came out during an interview where his brother, Minur, um, was asked that question. Well, where did he learn to become interested in guns? And that was where he learned, which I found that to be really interesting. And that's in a, a fairly recent uh, um, interview with Miner, and he was then later targeted in 1966, and this is near the same year that Carl L. Harp was targeted, and his experience in the ROTC prior to his crime is similar to that 
of the recent Parkland shooter in the school shooting, the recent school shooting, the Parkland shooting. As Mark Phillips, a former CIA agent, mentioned, he's deceased now, um, federal agencies screened public schools looking for kids to target that were either troubled or talented. And if you, again, go to the YouTube channel for The Indelible Project, and you can hear him or listen to him speaking about this. I think the video is titled Public Schools. And Sirhan fit that model. By all accounts, he was also very susceptible to being influenced or hypnotized or um, being put under hip, hip uh, in, put into a hypnotic state. The media, the mainstream media, willingly participated and still parrot the position of law enforcement regarding Sirhan's role in the shooting of RFK, no matter how many facts surface showing this is an incorrect position and that Sirhan could not have been the shooter. It would be physically impossible. And what is worse is that the parole commission and prison harassed Sirhan trying to intimidate him and make him ill under their control, using gaslighting techniques where they tell him false facts as if they are truths or cause havoc in his living space or place him in isolation. These are techniques of war. These are military strategies to be used against the enemy. And why is Sirhan still the enemy? when the truth has come out that he could not possibly have been the shooter because his very existence points to incriminating behavior by those acting under the color of the law, including military law. Unbeknownst to me, um, earlier in June, RFK Jr., that's RFK's son, announced that he was seeking to have his father's murder case reopened. He went to visit Sirhan in prison. He shook his hand and apologized to him and told him that he knew he was not the man who killed his father. Another shooting victim during that same assassination was Paul Schrade, who also appeared at Sirhan's 2016 parole hearing and stated the same. Paul has been a tireless citizen investigator, and it's because of his effort and that of Bill Pepper's legal team, including Dan Brown from Harvard, for Sirhan, that RFK Jr. is now taking such a bold action. And I think this is very good news, uh, not only for the American people and for Sirhan, but also for Dufer, because it means that there is now a chance the training that resulted in the loss of life and wrongful convictions may finally be made public. Making this public may also make further public shootings of this kind less likely, and kids in poverty, or former kids in poverty, like Dufer, Harp, or Sirhan, and the 32 other kids unnamed here that worked with Harp, may avoid being exploited and railroaded into such devastating lives in the future. Maybe in the future, our law enforcement and military 
will not reflect the behaviors endorsed by Stalin or Hitler. I recently read that in the 60s and 70s, federal agencies began funding research methods used by the Nazis for control of the mind of human subjects. This included efforts at the Stanford Research Institute headed by Hal Puthoff, and the Nazis were very interested in mind control, and they had gotten very far in the research using victims during the Holocaust. U.S. military leaders felt that they must adopt this same research if they wanted to remain on top of the Cold War. And as it was fairly advanced in the USSR, Russia, as well, so they began all their programs, such as those with names like Mockingbird, etc. I'm leaving out the most famous names just because, I don't know, it's used too much. The problem with this research and the implementation of these methods is that much of the methods were derived from ancient methods used, which had been part of large, larger spiritual practices. And you may find that to be somewhat shocking, but I think upon learning more details, you'll find it to be true. It was a, somewhat surprising to me. Consciousness in minds were explored in these practices and spiritual practices under very careful spiritual methods and developed over thousands of years and treated with much reverence. They were never meant to be used in secular practices. Yet the military and federal agencies green-lighted their use on human subjects and very likely still do. And many of these practices resulted in the training and targeting of kids in poverty without parental consent. They were incorporated into those practices. And I'll be talking more about that later with um, more detail. But I have to choose how to how to describe it and what parts to describe and what parts to leave out. Because otherwise... Um, it can sound overwhelming. So um, I'm going to be working on that too as well. This disconnected use of these practices then took on a life of their own. So if you use these practices that were used in spiritual practice for mind control or for mind exploration, if you use them in a secular context um, with different motives with motives to destroy or to harm or to dismantle or to control. So those are disconnected uses, um, then took on a life of their own. So taking them out of context allowed them to take on a life of their own. And perhaps those who now operate under these authorities who are informed by these methods and trained with these methods do not know the darkness they have unleashed and the harm they are causing, including the death and destruction which is expanding and the heartlessness done in the name of science, 
which is more often now akin to a secular religious practice. And that's been true for quite a while. So certainly um, this is something to consider. And that's all I have for tonight. I'm just sort of introducing some concepts and going a little bit further with some thoughts so um, to give you an idea of what's coming. Okay, have a good night.